1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. Before H.A. Uh, Ironside became uh, a well-known expositor of God's Word in the last century, he worked as a shoe cobbler uh, in the years preceding that, uh, off and on. And he worked for a Scottish man named Dan McKay. And McKay was a Christian man that not only professed it with his mouth, but he also lived it in his life and in his work. Well, Ironside's chief responsibility at working for this shoe cobbler was that he was to pound the leather of the soles. And so what he would do is he would take a piece of cowhide and he would cut it to suit. And then he would take that cowhide and he would soak it in water for a time. And then he had a, a piece of metal that he put over his knee and then he would stretch that, that cowhide over the, uh, the metal and then he would just pound. He had to pound and pound and pound that leather until all the water would come out. And to this job to him seems just toilsome and wearisome. And he didn't like it. He didn't like it at all. But what made matters worse is that on his way to and from work, he would also pass another shoe cobbler who happened to be an unbeliever. And this shoe cobbler in particular was known to be, well, he just, he, he would make lewd comments. He would tell lewd stories and lewd tales to the neighborhood kids who would come around. Yet despite this, he, his business seemed to thrive. And it caught, and, and Ironside kind of wondered, why, why is this? He often would notice as he would look in the window of this other cobbler that he noticed that this cobbler never pounded the soles at all, but took them from the water, nailed them on, damp as they were, and with water splashing, he would just drive each nail into the shoe. Well, his curiosity kind of got him. And he decided one day that he was going to step into uh, the store and he was going to watch this cobbler. And as he, he, he watched, he, he began to say, he says, well, you know, I, I notice you put the soles on while they're still wet. Are they just as good as if they were pounded? And this particular cobbler kind of with a little sly little grin and look kind of came up to him and he says, well, boy. They come back all the faster when you leave them wetter. Well, Ironside took note of that, and he thought, huh, maybe I'm missing out on something here. You know, he didn't like to pound the leather till it was dry. So he took this information about back to his boss and, and suggested that perhaps he was wasting his time by doing all that pounding to get him to the point uh, that they were dry. Well, Dan McKay stopped his work, went over and got his Bible, he opened it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, where it says this, Whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Then he said this to Ironside. He said, I do not cobble shoes for the money that I get from customers. I'm doing this for the glory of God. He said, I expect to see every shoe that I have ever repaired in a big pile at the judgment seat of Christ. And I do not want the Lord to say to me in that day, Dan, this is a poor job. You did not do your best here. I want him to be able to say, well done, good and faithful servants. 
Then he went on to explain that just as some men are called to preach, he was called to fix shoes. And Ironside came away saying, no, I learned a lesson I would never forget. And we have a lesson here today that I want you never to forget. And it's this. Your job matters. Your job matters for the glory of God. And the way that you do your job matters for the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? We've been looking in the book of 1 Timothy. And we particularly saw in 1 Timothy that this is a, a letter written to Timothy, who is a pastor there, dealing with some issues in Ephesus. And he's helping this church to be a focused church, to be an intentional church that lives out the traits of a body of believers that represents well the person and the work of Christ. We saw in, uh, in the beginning of chapter 5 where he related how you were supposed to handle things amongst the church, that we're to be a church family. And then we saw that as the church, we are to honor widows, particularly those who are widows indeed. And then we learned about how we are to work or we are to honor those who are elders who particularly work hard and diligently at the preaching, the teaching of God's word. Well, this theme of honor is going to continue today, but it's going to result around work and those particularly you work for. Look with me to the verse 1 of chapter 6. It says this, All who are under the yoke as slaves are to be regarded, are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them, because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more, because those who partake of the benefits are believers and beloved, teach and preach these principles. Now, I don't know about you, but the first thing that pops off in my mind when I read these scriptures is my thoughts immediately go to early American history and the huge blight that is on our country, that of slave trade and the ownership of slaves. There's an atrocity. And I'm like, how can God's word from this passage seem to condone slavery? And then I ask, does it? And why does Paul not passionately prohibit slavery? Well, without going into all the complexities of first century slavery, the time of Paul, I'm just going to summarize it up for us. I could do a whole sermon on this alone, but I'm not. The first is this. I want you to know this. The Bible does not condone slavery that the early American history is known for. It doesn't. And let me show you why. If you were to flip over to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, in that passage he gives a list of things that he calls sin. And amongst those things are sins like uh, killing your mother and your father and being a murderer. And he says one of those things is kidnapping. Or as some translations put it, slave trading or man-stealers. It's a sin. Exodus chapter 21, verse 16 says this, 
He who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or he is found in his possession, surely shall surely be put to death. It's a sin. Now, the Bible does give codes and, and how to manage those who are in slavery and those kind of things and how to treat them. But it doesn't condone slavery, the buying and selling of human beings. Now, we must understand that the society at this time was full of slavery. They were said about one-third of the population was slaves at this time in the Roman Empire, particularly in those, those large cities like Rome and Corinth and Ephesus. That's one-third. So if you were to look to your left and your right, amongst you one would be a slave. The slavery at that time was a, a part of the economic system. It, was, it wasn't as much as racially motivated as it was economic. The race was there, but it wasn't as much. But there were primarily two means of, of how people came to be slaves, and, and I'm oversimplifying to a sense here, but one was through the spoils of war. Through war, people became slaves in the Roman Empire. Second was a way where people actually would sell themselves into slavery. It was what we might refer to or know as indentured servants. In fact, some translations of the Bible here literally refer to this as bond slaves. The idea was that people were in such poverty, they were in such debt, that in order to get out, they would actually sell themselves for a period of time to get out of that debt. I think that's primarily what Paul has in mind here. Again, this is not to say that other forms of slavery and the evils that accompanied it did not exist. This is not to say that abuses did not occur amongst even the bond servants. But I also believe that the social climate did not allow for Paul to adamantly come out against slavery. Can you, can you think of that? Here is this minority movement moving in the Roman Empire. And if they led with abolish slavery... How do you think Rome would have responded? Y'all ever seen the movie Spartacus? That's how they respond. Instead, Paul decided a different strategy. He decided to undermine slavery. This is by the leading of the Holy Spirit. He led with something more powerful, something that doesn't just legislate on the outside, but that changes the inside. And so he led with the gospel of Jesus Christ, which changed the way that you responded to all slaves, which changed the way that you even responded to those who you're indentured servants or bond slaves. Matter of fact, it brought such change that Christian men later, like William Wilberforce, because of a change of heart, would lead the way to legislation against slavery. See, folks, there's power in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not against legislation. I'm all for it. We should get everything we can to better people and promote the values of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But real change, powerful change, comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ, which can regenerate a heart. Amen? So, how do we apply this? Well, well we might not consider ourselves bond servants. Many of us do work to earn wages. And so by extension, we, we, we can apply these truths to the employer-employee relationship. So in essence, this is, hey, how do we honor our bosses? How do we work well for our employers? Well, I want to suggest, first of all, that we respect 
the unbelieving master for two reasons. For the reputation of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at our text again here, verse 1. He says, you are slaves, regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Of all honor. He says, you're, you're to regard them this way. You're, you're to regard, that is to, you're to think this way. You're to believe this way. And, and the sense of it is not necessarily that you will feel that way. But it's, say, make an objective choice. This is how you're to treat them. Without a show of a hands. Because uh, some of you are thinking right now, Matt, you don't know my boss. How many here don't, don't show your hands because your boss might be here, but how many don't like your boss? It don't matter. God makes you, he's calling for you to make a choice. To regard them with honor. First Peter, Peter puts it this way. Verse 18 of chapter 2 of First Peter, he says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Now, I'm not saying if you have a bad boss and you have the opportunity to get another job, you shouldn't do it. I encourage you, go for it, all right? But as long as you are an employee, even if that boss is unreasonable, You're to honor him. You're to respect him. This is the same word honor that was used of widows and elders. It carries first and foremost the idea of respect, reverence for. But also carries there's a financial part of it. And as you honor your boss, you work well for him. You you help him produce wages, finances. And there's a reason for this. You see, there's more at stake than our happiness at work. And again, I'm all for finding a job you fit well with and that you enjoy. But there's more at stake at work than your happiness. By the way, did you know that your satisfaction should not be found primarily in your work? Now, I'm again, I'm not saying work is not a purpose. There's not a theological backing to work. But who you are and what defines you should not be your work. Who defines you and who you are is who you are in Christ and His purposes. And see, that changes the whole thing when your identity, your self-worth is grounded in the person and work of Christ and His purposes and plans here. Because when you get in that stinky job, the reality is you still have a purpose and a plan that God can use you as you await to get out of that stinky job. See, there's more at stake than just our happiness and work. Look what he says here. He says, regard your own masters as worthy of all honor so that, this is the purpose, that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. He's saying what he's saying here is the reputation of God is at stake. His name is on the line. Because as you work for that unbelieving boss, he knows you claim to be a Christian. And how you work puts the name of God and his reputation on on line. And not only that, it puts the gospel or the doctrine of God, which most validly refers to the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's in danger of being spoken against. That's our word we get blasphemed from. That is, the name of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, by how you work, is in danger of being spoken against, being slandered against. Your job matters, folks. Your work matters to God. 
And I want you to think about it for a minute. Just think about this for a minute with me. How many of you have had fellow employees who claim the name of Jesus, profess to be a Christian, but who conduct themselves so poorly at work? I want you to think about somebody right now. They, they, they conduct themselves so poorly, poorly at work, they, they show up late chronically. All right? They rip off the company with time or material. They talk bad about the boss or fellow employees. They don't execute. They don't produce. And in head, your head, you're thinking this right now. This is what you're thinking. You're just kind of thinking in your head, can you stop telling them you're a Christian? Tell them you're a Wiccan or something. Stop that. Because you're making the gospel in the name of God look bad. I don't even like you. I only love you because I have to. Stop it. How do you expect an unbelieving employer to like you and let alone hear what, what God has to say about the gospel for them from you when you work so bad, so poorly? How we perform at work reflects the name of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me just give you a few things here to, to, to help you, to help you kind of how do, I, how do I honor my boss? How can I be one of those, those, those workers at work that, that honors my boss? Now, let me start first with this. Witness at work, and this isn't in your bulletin, so you have to write it down. Witness at work first with gospel action before gospel words. Get that? Witness first with gospel action before gospel words. Matter of fact, gospel action should dominate. Here's what I mean by this. I'm going to give it to you with a with a negative attitude. Your boss comes to you and he says, "Hey, how 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 are the copies coming? Because you you got part of your assignment, your job description is you're a copy maker, all right? You make copies. You hang out the copy maker." The boss comes to you and he says, "Hey, how are those copies coming? So we have a deadline." Well, um, I don't have the, the copies done yet. Well, why? why? Why don't you have them done yet? Well, well, you see Frank over here? I, I was just telling Frank how he was going to hell because of his sins. And the boss looks at him. Well, I'm about to give you some of that if you don't get these copies made. So that, that doesn't float. We work first, we witness with gospel action before gospel words. If you've been hired to make copies, make the copies. Honor your contract first. Let, let the, be, the first thing that you witness with is, is, is making copies. So maybe it should go like this. Here's how it will go if you do. So your boss comes to you and you say, hey, you got the copies done? Yeah, I, I got the copies done. Here they are. And you know what he does? He walks away and he goes, man, I like copies. I like when copies are done. And I really like it when these Christians make their copies on time. And who knows, because you've made copies, maybe he comes back someday and he says, 
hey, you're a Christian. Well, well, tell me about this Jesus who instructs you to make copies so well and on time. Tell me about him. See, see, the reality is we should work so well that companies ought to come to our church and they should ask, hey, you got anybody there who makes good copies? You got some good workers? Because I've seen other Christians and they do it well. You know what the reality is? Companies have come here. Did you know that? They have come by. They've left stuff here. Hey, if you've got anybody who can work here. Did you know Grant and I get emails from people? Hey, do you know anybody there that might work? That's the way it ought to be. We've got to work so well that it opens doors to actually share the gospel in words. Amen? Let me, get, let me describe what this looks like. Just a, a few things real quick. First of all, this is what it should look like. Gospel in action should look like work hard while on the clock. I heard a terrible story from Kent Hughes who ran to a employer who was very skeptical of Christians. And he cited this one, this one story to this man. He says, yeah, I had a couple seminary students and it really it, it hit its point when uh, one of the seminary students came out of the bathroom and started talking to the other seminary student. I overheard him and he said, man... I just read three chapters of John in the bathroom. That didn't please God, and it certainly didn't please that man. Work while you're on the clock. Do what you're hired to do first, okay? Second, another thing we can look at is work with excellence as far as possible. Do the best you can do. Work quality. Give them quality. Because it reflects the name of God. In the gospel of Jesus Christ. Work as a team builder. Don't be one of those folks that, that are, are talking about bosses or talking about employees. Be an encourager. Hey, by the way, did you know the Bible says encourage one another? Wouldn't it be nice if we took it outside of the church and did it within the workplace? It should. Build up your fellow workers. And get this, work with integrity. Integrity. It's been said that integrity is who you are when no one is looking. Here's what Paul says about this integrity. Here's how he puts it. It's in, actually, it's in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. It says this, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and the sincerity of heart, as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men-pleasers. Get that. Not by way of eye service as men-pleasers. Let me explain to what this means. Ray Stedman tells the story of a missionary to Africa who was responsible for getting the nationals to, uh, to, to do certain jobs in their area. And the particular nationals that he got, they, he must have got the bunch that just didn't work hard. Okay? And he discovered that they would rather be lazy and they would only perform while he was actually watching them. When he left work or left them, they would stop doing their work until he returned. Well, this man happened to have a glass eye. And one day that eye was irritating him. And so he took that glass eye out and he put it on a stump. And he walked off. But when he returned, he came back to his surprise and he found them all working hard and working away. This makes you wish you had a glass eye, doesn't it? And see, he came to realize that because of the eye, they thought he was keep, they were still watching him. See, that's eye service. We're just doing it when the eyeball's on us. 
That's not integrity. It's not integrity. Thing is, this missionary thought he had found the way to free himself up because he left that eyeball there again until one day he discovered when he came back, one of those workers had walked up behind the eyeball and put a hat over top <laughs> and we're just laying around. But see, we know the gospel. And gospel ought to change our hearts. And whether our eyes on us or not, we should always be working because God's eye is always on us. Amen? Integrity is not just only when someone's not looking, but integrity is also when somebody is looking. Someone who has affected my theology on work tells the story of a friend of his, Doak. Doak uh, took on a very promising job with an oil company in Peru. It was a great job. It paid well, tremendously well. Well, as Doak was down there, and he, he all of a sudden, uh, after some time, he got called into the office by the boss one day. And because of oil negotiations in the military that was in control of the government at that time, Doak was asked to sign papers that would bribe the government in order for them to do certain oil exploits in Peru. The boss asked him to sign these papers, and well, Doak said, well, uh, can I think about it just for a moment? The boss said, well, what's there to think about? This is how we do business in South America. He said, I, I know, but that's not the way I thought I was going to do business. So he walked around the block, and he came back, and he said, you know, I, I really don't feel comfortable signing these, these papers. And the boss said, listen, if you don't sign these papers, you don't work here. And so Doak lost his job that day. He struggled to get back to the U.S. But that's integrity. And sometimes in the face of our unbelieving employees, the most powerful thing you can do is live out the gospel of Jesus Christ by living in integrity, even if it costs you. There's a second thing. Not only should we witness through gospel action before gospel words, we need to see work as sacred and not secular. Too many times, uh, first of all, we think that work is the curse. Let me, let me wake you up to something. Work is not the curse. God created work for us to do. The curse is the sweat and the pain that comes with the work and the thorns and the thistles and all that stuff. That's the curse but not work. Second, though, look at this. Ephesians 6, 7 says this. He says to slaves, employees, with goodwill, render service as to the Lord and not to men. In essence, do your work, not just to these employees. Yes, do it, but you're also serving me. You're doing it unto me. See, it's not just secular. It's sacred. It matters to God. When it comes to work, too often, believers draw a line between they have the sacred on one side and they have the secular on another, and they, they draw a line in that. But see, what, what God teaches, what the gospel instructs, is that we don't draw lines, but we draw circles around everything, and everything inside that circle is sacred. That's how it's to be. Everything. All your work is sacred to the Lord. 
We too often look at people like the apostles, Peter, John, and Matthew, and Paul, and we think, man, those guys have the sacred positions. They're the, they're the gospel proclaimers. I mean, look, look at, we, th- we think of, of guys and, uh, uh, that those guys are, are, are the, the, you know, th- those guys are, those are it. They got the sacred possessions or positions. I want to suggest to you that those guys are the exceptions. I mean, yes, true. Peter was called away from his fishing profession to be an apostle eventually. True, Matthew was called away from the IRS to follow the Lord, okay? It's true that Grant, myself, and Jeb, you know, we are called particularly to pastor. But you know what? I can only grant to the Lord so many times, okay? Reality is, if you look into the, the, the Bible, if you look into the Gospels, there's another IRS guy. His name was Zacchaeus. Remember him? The Lord made a change in his life. Did he call him out of that? He called him to do it differently, but he didn't call him out of that. Remember that Roman centurion? There's a Roman centurion that, uh, that, that Jesus, Jesus healed one of his slaves and and, or actually it was the Roman centurion that he said, you know, there, there's no other, other faith that I've seen in Israel like, like your faith. This is a Roman centurion. And did he call him out of that? No, he didn't. He said, go back. Go, go, go back to your soldiers. Remember, if you ever, ever take the time to maybe go and look and peruse some of the letters in the, in the New Testament and look at those names in the back, Okay. These are all names that Paul was oftentimes commending in some certain way. There's even one guy, I didn't even, I never even heard of him before. I don't even remember reading his name was Erastasus. It's in Romans 16, verse 23, and he was a, a treasurer in Corinth. But these are people he's commending as, as well. They were part of the church. They weren't apostles. They were still working a job. But what they did was sacred because of who they did it for, the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Stop drawing lines between your work and your ministry. Just draw a circle around it. You see, you have the most powerful, powerful ministry than any pastor. You do. You, because you're called to be salt and light, you have the opportunity to show them what a doctor would look like or show them what Christ would look like if he was a doctor. You have an opportunity that if you're a lawyer, that you have an opportunity to show them what Christ would look like if he was a lawyer. If you move dirt around in a big machine, you have an opportunity to show them what Christ would look like if he moved dirt around at a construction site. That's, that's what he wants us to think. That's how he wants us to live. Now, I can get an amen there just a little bit. That takes a little work, and I got... I got I got allergies too. Okay, help me out. That's powerful, folks. That's powerful. There's a third thing. It says, let God work in you so he can work well through you. Ephesians 2.10 says we are his workmanship. And the reason he says that is not only does he do a work for us and that he saves us, but after he saves us, he wants to do a work in us. He wants to change us and transform us to become more and more like Christ so that through us we might do good works. And guess where some of those good works are? They're not just here on Sundays. 
Okay? They're out there every day in your workplace. And so here's the question. If you want to work well in the workplace, are you letting God's word into your heart to prepare you for the workplace so that when you get to the workplace, you don't think like the rest of the world, but you think like Christ in the workplace? Are you, when you go to go work in the workplace, are you preparing yourselves by asking the Holy Spirit to fill you and to enable you to walk in His power so that when you're in the workplace, what you show them is not the words or deeds of the flesh, but what you show them are the deeds and the works of the fruit of the Spirit. So let let God work in you so that He can work through you. Another thing, look at your unbelieving boss as Christ does. Guess how how Christ looks at your unbelieving boss? He's a sinner in need of a Savior. Do you look at him that way? When he's annoying you, all right, when you're having fleshly thoughts about him, because we still have to fight with the flesh, what if you just changed the way that you looked at him? You said, no, that's a, that's a sinner in need of a Savior, and I have an opportunity to point him to the Savior by living out the name of God and for the gospel of Jesus Christ in front of him. Work's getting a little powerful now, isn't it? It should be. There's a fifth thing. It says pray for your boss. If we went back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, remember, or chapter 2, remember that? Remember that passage I preached on where it talked about how we're to pray for all those who are in authority? Guess who's in authority over you? Your boss. And we're to pray for him. Because why? Because God desires that all men might come to know him as their Savior. Look at that passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Pray for your boss. It'll change things. I can't guarantee you it'll change your boss, but I can guarantee you this. If you take that attitude, it will change you. Now, not all of us work for an unbelieving boss. Some of us work for a believing boss. You're like, whew, all right. Things are better now, okay? Well, look, look what it says here. It says, Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more, because those who partake of the benefit and believers are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. In essence, something was happening here. He's correcting something, because evidently these guys were getting the idea, well, they're being disrespectful somehow. To be disrespectful is the idea of to look down on. And maybe in their minds they were thinking, you know, wait a minute. He doesn't have authority in me because, you know, you know, Paul, you've said, you know, there's no longer free or slave in Christ. All right? So, hey, what authority does he have over me now? Okay? Or, or, or maybe, maybe they, were, they were thinking that, you know, hey, we're brothers in Christ. We, I can slack off here in their, in their work. Or, you know, we go to the same church. You're not going to fire me. Because my family's in need. Maybe some of you have worked for, for Christian bosses and you've seen this attitude before. You ever seen that? We can call it the Christian bro card. The Christian bro card, you know what I mean? Your boss comes to you and he says, man, um, you're, you're kind of late for work today. Yeah, I know, bro. But get this, bro. I was having devotions this morning in Deuteronomy, and it was sweet. 
I, I put it together that Moses is actually giving the law for the second time. Judo, the second giving the law, bro. Or this one. Bro, I, I, need to go for, I need to get off work. I need to go on a missions trip for a month <laughs> to Mexico in Acapulco. <laughs> Evangelism, you know, on the beach. Don't pull the bro car. You're believing master, you're believing boss is still an authority. God has designed organization and authority, and he expects you to respect it. Because that, too, says something to the watching world, but it also has an opportunity for you to benefit your brother in Christ. But look what it says here, but serve them all the more. This is intensive. It's like yeah, you, you want to serve well, but you ought to have a different motivation when you serve your, your believer. When you serve your believing brother, you ought to be like, yes, I can serve my believing brother. I can help him out or her out. Because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. As they're believers, see, this, this is another way, even back in time of slaves and bond servants, this would have been radically changed in the sense that here, here's a, a, as a servant and a master or, who have become Christians through the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're now one. They cross social boundaries, all right? And they come together. And now they look out of this, I don't just have to do this to pay off some debt, but I'm doing this also because he's my brother in Christ. We're in the same family for all eternity, and I'm going to help him out. And he's beloved. He's loved by God, and he should be loved by me because God calls me to love himself and to love my fellow neighbor, to love my fellow brother and sister in Christ. Here's another way to think about it. As I was listening to someone else put in my mind, this whole idea of benefit. Because you do have a brother, you, you, you should want to benefit him. There are companies all over the world, and what they're doing is they're making money, right? That's what companies do. They make money, and they should make money, okay? Or they're not a good company. They're not going to exist. And there's companies that filled with p- people who are unbelievers who are the head of those companies. And certainly they do good things, but they also do all kinds of other things with their money. And get at all kinds of other organizations and support things. Well, believing owners and company owners, they want to make money too, okay? Now, ask this question. Think about it for a moment. If you have the privilege to work for an unbelieving, and by the way, some of you might get there's all kinds of things to say to the, the master, the employer. I just can't get to it today, okay? They have responsibilities. But if you think about it, if you had the opportunity to work for an unbelieving brother, who would you want to make more money? The unbelieving or the believing? Because who is the one that should be helping fund ministry within the church? Who is the one who should be helping even in more ways to fund missions around the world? Who is the one who should be helping to fund and deal with poverty 
It should be the brother who loves Jesus and ought to be loving people. And that ought to move us, if that's his motivation, and says that should be his motivation, we ought to want to serve him and benefit him. It's good. And that's the, what Paul is trying to teach him here. He says, serve them all the more, because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. After college... I was on my way to go to seminary. But in between college and seminary, I, I needed a job, okay? Because I needed to make money. And so one of the things is I had a brother-in-law who um, worked as a finance manager at a car dealership. My brother-in-law was a believer in Christ and still is a believer in Christ. Um, and so... I asked, I, I asked, talked to him about getting a job, and I kind of wanted to be a, you know, a car salesman. And basically he said, look, you're not going to work here long enough to even know how to sell cars. You're not going to make any money. So here's what I'm going to do, okay? Because you're my brother-in-law. You need help. I'm, I'm going to give you a job. I'm going to give you this job. It's called a lock tech. I said, man, a lock tech? Sounds kind of professional. Lock tech. I'm a lock tech, all right? I'm not making copies, but I'm a lock tech, okay? Lock tech is just a glorified name for a car washer. That's all it was. That's all it was. Matt, go wash the used cars, all right? Go do that, all right? Come back here, get the, the new cars prepped, do that, all right? Come up here and wipe off the windows in the showroom every once in a while, do some of that, okay? I said, oh, great. You can just imagine my attitude. Here, I'm a college graduate. I have a bachelor's. And I'm washing cars. Reality hits. Fortunately, I went to a Christian college and they had a theme there. And one of the things they pushed was this. Hey, you are called to be salt and light. Matter of fact, we are training you up to be engineers and teachers and all these different things so that you will go and you will represent Christ in whatever your profession is, whatever it is. And I'm thinking, I'm not a teacher. That was my undergraduate. I'm not a teacher now. I'm a lock tech. But the Holy Spirit convicted me. I said, all right, I'm going to go with this philosophy here. Okay. And I'm going to clean cars well. And I don't know how this is for the glory of God, but I'll do it somehow. So I did it despite my flesh. And through this time, I saw God work. Actually, I had a bunch of guys, other fellow lock techs in the back. We were kind of hanging out. And they're like, man, Matt, why, why do you work so hard, bro? All right. Why do you work that way? I said, well, after some time, I told them. And after some time, that opened the door for the gospel. Because that's why I did it. Because everything in my flesh said, Mm-mm, I don't want to be a lock tech. But the gospel of Jesus Christ said, no, you'd be a lock tech for me. One of those guys, was, his name was Bernard. He taught me a lot about cleaning cars. I can show you some tricks, how to keep the door jams clean and all this kind of stuff. Bernard, even on his own accord, he had heard I was going to speak at my church, and he came out on his own, and he heard me speak, preach the gospel, preach the word of God. Another opportunity I had when I was just out on the front, because I did learn some tricks. I worked hard, but I also tried to work smart, so I planned out my days. When it was getting hot, I'd go into the, the, the showroom, clean every one of those windows in the car. You know what I'm saying? You know, you know my game right there. So I did that. 
But because of my brother-in-law and his influence there, those guys came to know that I was on my way to seminary. So I'm a believer, not just any believer. I'm going to train to be a pastor. So I guess they're watching, aren't they? Eventually I had one of those salesmen come up to me, and he started talking and engaging me as I'm wiping windows. Well, tell me, I don't know. I'm not so sure about this Jesus and all that. And we started talking. I'm washing windows, though, because I'm going to get them done. And I shared, the, I shared the gospel with him as I was washing windows. Before I left there, uh, those salesmen kind of had a little, get, just a small little getaway, and, and they gave me some money to help get me a suit, I think it was, to, to go to seminary. Because I'm a pastor, you know, I need a suit. But when I walked away from that place, God taught me something. He taught me that work matters. And the way that you work matters to the reputation of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and encouragement to your fellow believers, which was my brother-in-law at that time. Your work matters, believer. Do it for the glory of God. Dear God, we come and we praise you. We thank you that you are so, so much wiser than we are. So much wiser, God. Lord, if I were to follow my own wisdom, I'd have made a mess of being a lock tech. But Lord, you give us your truth. My prayer is, Lord, that uh, as we sit here today, that we might go out with a different perspective on the work that we do and realize it is sacred to you. And I pray, Lord, that uh, my fellow believers in Christ will walk out of here and seek to glorify you in whatever position they're serving. And, Lord, we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen.